I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. I like to move it, move it. You like to move Hello, everybody, and welcome back to I Like to Movie Movie. Thank you so much for waiting for me while I went to the Philadelphia Film Festival. It's always an exhausting time, uh, but it's always a lot of fun. Saw a lot of great stuff, got to hang out with some cool people, uh, drank some pretty tasty seltzers, and uh, I don't know, it was just it was a good time. It was great to be back to the movies. They were very COVID-safe about it. Uh, there was mask vaccine requirements. Uh, they were roping off chairs that you kind of had to stagger. And I got to say, the stagger thing was really nice because you could just kind of spread out. Like, you you know, when it's not a crowded movie in the before times, there was a stuffed chair. Everybody has a stuffed chair. And there was no circumstances where somebody did like a double stuffed chair. So everyone was real cool. I didn't have any like crazy like... um. I'm trying to say this in the most sensitive way possible. Sometimes the olds get a little, uh, little antsy at these things, but it was all, it was all gravy this time around. Uh, but a little bit later in the show, I'm going to be covering some of the stuff that I saw at the Philadelphia Film Festival, which you can check out my written word at findy.com. Uh, you can also check out some coverage that Andy and Gary, and I think a handful of others did at moviejohn.com. Uh, as always, I like to movie movie as part of the Movie John a podcast network. Please follow me at Movie Movie Cast on all of the things where following can happen. And uh, yeah, uh, so this is a very special episode that we have today. Uh, anybody who listens to the show knows that I love horror movies, specifically anthology horror movies, specifically. Uh, VHS, that brand of the horror movies. So I'm very, very excited to have one of the stars of VHS 94 on the show to talk about his role in the latest movie. His name's Christian Lloyd, and I actually asked him to write an intro, and I'm going to read the intro, uh, because it's, it's just very well worded. <clears throat> and he sounds like a cool guy. Christian Lloyd is a British-born, Canadian-bred, multi-hyphenate. After graduating with an honors degree in specialized human biology, he attended theater school to go after his lifelong dream of being an actor. He is also a published playwright and screenwriter, in addition to being a portrait photographer. He has worked with such visionaries as Oliver Stone, Gail Ann Hurd, and David Cronenberg. He has walked the red carpet at Cannes. He has cage-dived with great whites in South Africa, rehabilitated wild animals in Guatemala, and hiked the seven-day Salkante Trail to Machu Picchu, and yet, there is still so much to check off his bucket list. You can edit at will. <laughs> well, the cool thing about doing an interview is that, especially with an intro like this, is that now I don't have to come up with any questions, because he did all the work for me here. Uh, in, unless he's just being goofy, but uh, I don't think he is. He's the he's he's the real deal. So Christian Lloyd, uh, he plays a role in the last segment of VHS ninety four, where he plays Greg, the leader of a uh, backwoods militia. I believe is the term that I'd use. Um, I I don't think they're expressly white supremacists in the movie, but uh, they give off that vibe. It's that kind of a thing, and they're working on a supernatural-style weapon to do a terrorist act with. It's a wild, wild, wild entry. 
Uh, it's one of the best in the entire series. It's uh, the director's name is Ryan Prowse, who made Low Life, a movie that I apologize I've not seen yet, but I've been meaning to watch forever. Um, that he directed and and co-wrote with a bunch of other people which I hear is awesome. And so Christian plays the role of Greg in that, and he was kind enough to donate his time to the podcast, so we're going to uh, cut to that now. Uh, my interview with Christian Lloyd. All right, and welcome to the show, one of the stars of VHS 94, Christian Lloyd. Welcome to I Like to Movie Movie. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thanks for thanks for being on the show. Uh, we first connected on Twitter because I said something kind about your movie. So uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you for, for responding to some positivity on Twitter and uh, offering your time up to the show. Oh, my pleasure. And well, thank you for uh, giving a glowing report on the film. It's interesting. Uh, I think our segment is, uh, you know, people are torn. Uh, so it's interesting because I think when we do our job well, uh, people really hate us. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think it's easy as Canadians. Um, we sort of have a, a, a way of having a non-judgmental eye um, when sort of portraying these kind of characters. So it's interesting because, of course, in America, these people are family members of some of the viewers and neighbors and loved ones. And so to see that represented on a screen, I'm sure, is sometimes hard to digest, especially when they're the quote unquote, protagonists at times. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so it's just fascinating to see the response on Twitter. So anything positive, positive, you sort of run towards and go, hello. Oh, of course, um, of course. So yeah, in your exactly. segment, this is the segment, I believe it's the last segment of VHS 94 titled Terror, mm -hmm. uh, written and directed by Ryan Prowse, who did Low Life. And so yes. in it, you play Greg, who is the leader of a we'll call it a militia yes that is uh that has a biological weapon that they are looking to set off in a public square so they're looking to do a terrorist act and yeah. looking at you right now you seem like a very kind gentleman yeah and i i wonder uh, what what is that like turning yourself into uh, i know it's not expressly in the text but i just want to call them white supremacists what is it like yeah, oh, totally, to totally. convert yourself into a white supremacist terrorist who is also a bit of a buffoon. Well, what's interesting is uh, we were told, because obviously right now actors live in the land of doing self-tape auditions. And uh, we were told if possible to record the audition outside. So I remember taking a friend and I live in Toronto and there's something called Toronto Islands, which are a collection of islands. You can take a ferry over. Uh, it, it had just snowed maybe a day before um, and I remember doing this outside and I thought, you know, there's no way it, at home I could with neighbors say some of the things that I have to say in this audition. Like, I, that's not going to be, you know, and what do you do? Leave notes under people's doors. Um, yeah. <laughs> this is just pretend, I assure you. Yeah, exactly. So I went over to the island. I am um, one of those actors who's always training sort of in masterclass type actor gyms. And one of my colleagues uh, said, yeah, yeah, I'll come with you. Let's tape this. And I have to tell you, my first pass at this character was awful. Oh, no. Um, and, and I think what it was, was there was just so much to, to attack when it comes to these types of characters. Uh, it's easy to judge them. It's easy to sort of 
you know, pigeonhole them. And I wanted to, it sounds really lame, but I wanted to find the sort of truth and authenticity behind this character. And obviously the more that you believe what they believe in, I mean, within the context of the fiction, um, then, then you can find layers and shading and humanity and all these other things that come of it. But if you just go in and go, I'm playing a white supremacist who's a buffoon, then you're not gonna land the role. So for me, it was, where's his humanity? Um, <laughs> which was, you know, a deep dig. Um, <laughs> yeah. But also, you know, what's making him tick on a personal level? Because that's what it all comes down to. Certainly. So, you know, I, I sort of had certain, you know, points for my own life that I could, you know, hold on to that this character likely is holding on to. And so for me, once I made it my version of this character, then I think, I was able to tread into dark territory knowing that I could easily step out of it. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I think the tendency with a character like this is to see what you've seen, you know, been portrayed before. So I really fought against that. And I, I, I don't know, I think the more he believed in his mission then the buffoonery sort of came across. And I think his own added insecurity made him pick people who were less successful than him. Interesting. So he could yeah, be yeah. a hero within his shit team. So I think for me, that made it easy because the people that I was surrounded by just wanted to listen to everything that I said. And, and mm -hmm. it's, you know, they're the emperor's new clothes. Yeah, situation. and you're in an unearned place of authority, which is where these type of people tend to thrive. Totally. And I think the other interesting thing, too, historically in Michigan in the 90s is the unemployment rate was so high. And so I decided of all these people, I'm the one who's currently unemployed and that the house and the compound was given to me by an aunt. So for me, it's like I added that whole thing. If anyone found out I was unemployed, this would be yeah, you know, yeah, the yeah. worst, the worst thing ever, worse than anything that I'm doing, people knowing that I don't have a job. So, <laughs> such an ego jab. You know, yeah. It's such an ego jab, but you can see where that comes from. Yeah. We used to always, uh, I used to always, I always joke. oops, sorry, broke up there. No, no, you, no, you, you go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say back in the day, I was a stand-up comedian and we used to always joke that the comedians who became the most successful were the ones that ended up on unemployment because then they were able to devote their time to telling jokes at bars late at night. Oh, and so I imagine totally. the unemployed guy is probably the one with the most access to time to be able to start uh, building a terrorist act from, from bottom up. Oh, for sure, for sure. And what's interesting too, and I have to add, this was my first real rural character. And there's something called a hit when, um, you know, you, you certain classes you go and they go, these are the sorts of roles that immediately come to mind when we look at you based on your bone structure, your teeth, you know, your hair, the, your stature, the way you hold yourself, all these things will give an impression of what kind of roles you can play. And I would say 90% of the time I'm urban. And I would say 95% of the time I'm a well-educated white prick. Um, a, you know, a guy who runs a corporation um, who, you know, smiles, you know, through the insults, never loses control. Mm. And so for me, once I looked at this guy, I went, you know, uneducated, rural, horrific, and, you know, quick to anger. Those aren't parts that I play. Mm -hmm. So for me, you know, I was wearing definitely the imposter coat up until the first moment of rolling camera. 
just because I've, I'd never, this is not in my back pocket to play this type of character. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I, I, you know, it was a thrill and I'm always about the challenge, but definitely there was a moment like, what am I doing? Like, I, I, I've never, you know, attacked this type of character. And it's a very specific, um, and it's weird to watch. I will say, I watch it and I go, I don't walk like that. I don't talk like that. I don't move like that. I don't laugh like that. Like, none of it is me. And it was fascinating to watch the transformation. If I were to put a picture of what you look like right now next to the picture of the role of Greg, and, you know, let's say there was a roster that I had to match up, I, I don't think yeah. I would have been able to match you to it. No. Like when we first contacted one another, I, it took me a minute to figure out who you were in the movie because it's such a complete transformation. You do look like a completely different person. Well, what's really interesting is Charlize Theron had prosthetics. You know, she gained a bit of personal weight. I mean, I had COVID on my side. Um, But, uh, you know, I think that's, what's interesting is at, you know, at Beyond Fest, we went out for drinks after and one of the executive producers and I were talking and he's one of the directors of the new Scream film. And so we're chatting and then he goes, hey, uh, how, do you know, how do you know Ryan? And I said, uh, from, from working with him. And he goes, cool, we're a project. And I said, uh, VHS 94? And he goes, oh, who are you? And I said, and this is someone who had been with the footage for months. Yeah, and yeah. I said, I'm, I'm Greg. And it was weird. He just looked at me and kind of went a bit pale and he went, that, that's, not, that's not you, that's not possible. And I think because the transformation isn't physical really i mean i slicked my hair back and had a goatee that's Mm. the physical transformation and yet and i think also the way it was downgraded to a Mm. vhs look probably does something but i think what's interesting is the internal transformation really manifested in this physical transformation which is funny because part of me was like yeah i'm in this horror movie that's you know doing really well worldwide and yet no one's ever gonna fucking notice who i am yeah that's true (laughs) You know, well, that's and, my job. I'm going to elevate you to our yeah, exactly. millions upon millions yeah. of listeners. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the um, actually, it's funny that you say how how difficult it is to to make a character without judging them. But my girlfriend is an actress, and she's always said that that's the first rule: is the second you start judging your character, you suddenly become a commentary on them as opposed to totally. embodying them. And that's got to be so difficult with something like this. But I'm wondering about the timeline. I would imagine that this this short that you're in was at least conceived prior to the January 6th insurrection? Totally. And here's the weird thing. January 4th is the day we came back from Christmas holidays and the offices were open and my agent called and said, hey, we're setting up an interview with the director. And I said, great, we chatted. And, you know, I was like, I guess this role is mine. And then all of a sudden, January 6th happened. And I was talking to the director and, you know, we had a Skype check-in, which is amazing. And mm. that's what's so great about, about Zoom and everything online nowadays is he had a one-on-one with his cast. And so he basically said, well, you know, your job's easy. Just turn on your television. Um, <laughs> and I think for us, uh, racism exists in Canada, but it's to a more... Um, I don't know. It's it's one of those things that comes out at a dinner party and it's shocking, the casual racism that exists in Canada. Uh, I don't know if you know about what, you know, the unearthing of an, uh, unnamed indigenous graves in Canada, mm-hmm. all these children. And so we have a lot of bruises to sort of attend to as a nation. Um, but I just feel like in America, 
uh, you know, not to get too political, but with certain people in power, those voices were given a platform. They were certainly and, emboldened. Yes. And so I feel like for me, what was fascinating, and again, being a Canadian and having a very loving relationship with America, I, the ability to sort of step into that mind frame and that framework and that time frame uh, basically allowed us to sort of observe and fill these characters from a place of, of uh, perverse curiosity um, versus, well, we're better than these, you know, bastards, mm -hmm. which I think is, is an, a natural tendency to go into. Um, but finding the joy and fascination uh, and immediately the first day of shooting, we were crying between takes because where we all went collectively was hilarious because we all committed so much to quote unquote the cause that all the Americans on set were laughing at the discomfort of, of how easily we were able to go there. And I think it's because it's not our lived reality mm -hmm. people. Um, I mean, certainly they live in Canada, but not to the same extent where they're visible. Um, yeah, they're not on so, the front page news where yeah. so frequently that's what we see here. Right. And so um, I think what it was, was just just a, a way of coming to a place of understanding how this could happen. Um, and when you're doing that, you're coming from a place of empathy. So being, you know, open to the mindset of these men um, really helped shape the world that we were in. Um, and having a director like Ryan, who is... You will listen to this. Um, he's such a fascinating um, dichotomy because he is the, you know, you saw Low Life. Did you see Low Life? No, I actually it's, haven't oh, seen Low Life. I've been my, meaning to forever. God. It's, I might do it right when we get off the call yeah, here. Just it's, because, honestly, uh, it's, it's, it's Quentin Tarantino with um, a super sensitive, um, uh, empathetic eye. Um, and some of uh, his lead actress is incredible. And, and it just really takes an, a director to understand where you need to go uh, and shape it. And then all of a sudden give you an M16. And I, <laughs> that's what's so great about him. I mean, honestly, I, I had a moment where um, it's, it's sort of snipped in the film, but I have this like Sermon on the Mount type of, of moment. And he just looked at me and it's, it's one of those moments as an actor, which could be potentially a nightmare where it's cold. It's very cold. It's at night. We're not wearing much and you know to protect ourselves the entire crew's outside everyone is outside and i have this massive monologue with that thing where the cage mm -hmm. um, falls apart and it's pretty much the last scripted scene to shoot and he comes up to me and he goes hey man everything's there just take your time just just literally breathe through every moment and connect it and we'll just edit edit it nice. and so he allowed me this this sort of platform to not feel rushed, which, you know, on sets is always the thing is be there, deliver at 110% and then get, get the hell out so we can go on to the next shot. And so the fact that to have a, a director do that, and I went places that I didn't expect. I just sort of lived in this reality, you know, and had this breakdown and all of a sudden had a breakdown, but realized not only am I having a breakdown outside in the cold in front of this crew that I've been working with, but also this character just had a breakdown in front of his men. He had this moment of weakness. And then I'm also documenting this whole thing. So I looked at one camera and I had to collect myself. And it was one of those moments where I was just like, either that just 
you know, was an incredible acting moment or, oh my God, I have so much egg on my face. And he came, <laughs> he came up to me and, you know, I was sobbing and blah, blah, blah. And he came up to me and just sort of held me. Um, and he just basically whispered in my ear, he goes, you know, thanks for bringing Shakespeare to the set. Right and on. then, you know, and then sort of went on, whereas some directors would be like, hey, fuck it! And, and sort of, you know, turn it into like a super bro-y, weird moment where yeah. you kind of like, you feel stupid for, because here's the thing, we're paid to be vulnerable. We're paid to dismantle, you know, the patriarchy and, you know, all those sort of, you know, toxic masculine bullshit things. So to be in a project that reeked uh, externally of toxic masculinity uh, and reads like an action movie, it was just so amazing to have a director like that who was aware that when, you know, those human moments arise that you're being embraced for the humanity you bring um, versus like, yeah, we got the fucking shot, you know, let's yeah, get yeah. an M16, which is hilariously what the next scene is. And yeah, I actually yeah. shot a re real M16, Really terrifying. Yeah. Oh, I can imagine. I, you know what, it's, it's interesting that you say that because it, it is the type of movie that, that, you know, I, I look at that and I, I would imagine that it is kind of bro-y like that. And then as I watch it, uh, specifically your segment, it becomes almost a commentary on that broiness. We see these guys that were drawn into something uh, just really malicious. And I imagine some of that draw into that life came from patriarchal forces and came oh, yeah. from that sort of just male ego sort of thing. Well, exactly. And I think what it is, is you know, someone you look up to not only applauding uh, what you're doing and what you're creating, but also, you know, needing you as much as you need them. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, any any sort of trope of, of that world, you know, it always seems to be a mutual need. Mm -hmm. um, you need to put me on the pedestal. And the only way I can be on the pedestal if I have people that are lower than me that are going to listen. And I think what's interesting, and someone actually mentioned this on Twitter, um, that it takes a really ballsy actor to deliver monologues that fall flat. And oh, yeah. there was that sort of thing built in that when I read it, I went, I, I, I actually don't go anywhere. There's no response. There's no echoed response to, to most of my speeches. And, and I realized it's not because, you know, one is poorly written or anything like that, which wasn't my first thing. It was just, you know, there's a disconnect. And the disconnect is that my speeches don't land. Mm -hmm. I use language to impress myself and impress them, but it just confuses them. So every single one of my monologues just lands on deaf ears. And as an actor, I remember feeling like, ooh, that felt super flat. And it's supposed to. Yeah. Uh, and I have to tell you, as an actor standing up on a mountain with a gun and then just sort of seeing blank faces, you're like, well, that was effective. But it is effective because of his ineffectual, you know, nature. Um, I say you got to so yeah, be uh, you got to be a good, realistic painter before you can paint cartoons. Well, exactly. And I think, you know, I, I, there was a time where we definitely got roped in. Um, I mean, there's a scene where... <laughs> I'm talking to Slater, the cop, about the guns that were you know, unleashing into the barn. And at one point, I'm supposed to hork because he's, you know, he's involved with my men and I'm supposed to get the attention back. So I have this like, you know, masculine hork and I'm not a horker. Yeah, so yeah. I, went to, I went to hork and then he turned around when I horked and I went to spit on the ground and I spit on my arm. <laughs> like I spit on myself and he clocked it. 
And then it looked like he was going to laugh. And then I just sort of kept it. And then when he turned his back, I kind of wiped it off. And our DP was dying. That's incredible. And, Little moment you know, of serendipity. Just, totally. It was just moments like that. Um, and the director was like, okay, we have to really, you know, sort of, it, there was like a, a Christopher Guest feel. And so when I watched the film, I was like, holy crap, this film is dark. Because when we shot it, there was such like moments of levity, mm -hmm. between, you know, and obviously every time we said cut, we would all start laughing. Of course, yeah, that's um, gotta be impossible. Um, so to see it stitched together in a way that it is, you know, obviously the humor is coming out of the absurdity um, and also their conviction. But, but uh, <laughs> I remember my friend and I were watching in LA for the first time in a theater with 470 people. Um, and he just looked at me and he goes, this is so fucking dark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, that's like anybody making a horror movie. That's that's what you want. You want that that reaction. I mean, I think you well, said totally. earlier, uh, perverse curiosity was the term that you used. I think yeah. that's the key to how horror movies can sort of, you know, show a window into some stranger aspects of real human existence, such as like the insurrectionists. Um, you know, we can look at something like that through a lens of horror and end up exploring it in a way that's fun and thoughtful without being necessarily overtly political. Right, and it's funny because some people I've read that are like, oh, that one was too political. I'm like, are you kidding? Are you kidding? Yeah. It actually wasn't. Um, and actually what I find interesting is I loved a flipped narrative. And I feel like with ours, it's like we're watching Freddy Krueger in his every day. And then all of a sudden you find out that uh, this film's not really about Freddy Krueger, it's about the hurricane that's coming. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's interesting to sort of gain insight into, you know, totally, you know, um, awful people and then see a comeuppance. And it's amazing how many people just want the, you know, the trope of, you know, the blonde who's being chased and we care about the blonde because she's pretty. Like, it's amazing how many horror people didn't like the flip of ours that we're, you know, that we're actually cheering for the creature mm. at the end, you know? Um, and I thought that was brilliant. I mean, when I read the script, I was like, this is so genius, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, it's, it's interesting how, how people didn't like that. Uh, you know, the fact that it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't given to them piecemeal, that there was definitely, you had to invest and go, okay, wait a sec, what's happening? Why is that guy being killed again? And it's interesting how many people think it's the same scene shot at different angles. You know what? I had that experience the first time I watched it. I've watched yeah. the movie three times now. And um, and honestly, this is true for every one of the shorts. Uh, there's not a lot of hand-holding in any one of them. No. It's not until it's over that I really understand the full breadth of the plot, which allows for rewatchability, because then I can go back to it knowing what exactly. I know now. And I would say that's probably... Uh, truest for your segment the terror just because you know i didn't know to go in expecting specifically that type of monster and then once i did and i learned the physics of the blood and the weaponry and all that right it, it unlocks so much more on second and third viewing and i'd imagine on a fourth one which there will be well and i also love the fact that it's on a streaming service where you can do that mm -hmm. um i mean i remember watching i think it was the sixth sense or something there was a, a more recent film and I was like, oh, piss off. Now I have to go back and watch it again in the yeah. theater, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, and I, I, I love that it wasn't hand holy. Um, and it's funny because I remember uh, we have a, a rep theater here 
that shows, you know, movies that are about a month old. And I remember going to see the first VHS and I just, you know, thinking what a great concept. And it's just so crazy that years later, I'm part of the canon. You live in the dream. I mean, it is one of my favorite franchises. I love a good anthology. Actually, I don't know if you can see it. I've got a VHS poster behind me from the the very first one. And um, that's awesome. Yeah, great. It's just such a great franchise. I think that handholdy narratives become a problem within found footage because so many found footage movies you need to explain one why is the camera still filming even though there's right. like, crazy stuff going on and like two how do you exposit so much plot with you know when this is supposed to look candid and off the cuff and i think that probably more so than any of the vhs movies this entire film really validates the use of the camera uh at no point did I go like, why aren't you turning the fucking thing off and running? You know, and so I think in the terror, it's great because you want it documented. This is your big statement as a militia. And oh, yeah. So what well, really makes the, the plot kind of uh, flow easier. Well, and also, um, you know, the director said to me, he goes, by the way, because I, I said to him, um, I, I'm about to lose my shit. Why do I want that documented? And he goes, no, you're going to edit the best moments. So you're letting them film everything. And I remember there was a moment where I was like, when do I look at the camera first? And he was like, you'll know. I was like, cool. So there was a time at the beginning, he goes, no, not now. And I was like, okay. And what was really fun as an actor is ours, I don't know if it's, a, if it's uh, obvious, but we have two cameramen. There's like the official cameraman who does the taping upstairs where Steve is, is you know, about to make out with the creature. There's that cameraman. And then there's kind of like a B-roll cameraman. Yeah. And so what's interesting is our DP would hold it once and then we'd shoot the scene again with him holding the other camera. So there were times where I was like, I had no idea which camera I gave this part of the monologue to. And then all of a sudden the DP would wave his hand and I would go, oh, right, this camera now. And so to, to do that in a way that felt organic and natural, but have it be stitched together... Anyway, that was a massive, um, you know, and it's funny because one of those things I was like, I have to do this like mind map of how this is going to work. And, you know, one of my favorite moments is when they go, hey, Air Commandant, do you have anything to say? And then the line is cut. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, you know what? And it's funny in the moment, I didn't, you know, talk to the director about this, but I just said in the moment, he's suddenly camera aware and camera shy and terrified to to just say what's on his mind and it's just that moment and then i go cut and it's just such a fun moment um and uh yeah so so having that found footage element of of direct address because it's an actor we never look down the barrel yeah yeah um and so that was really challenging on top of creating this whole world with sort of realizing that there's this other character in the room that that I had to play too but also knowing that we have the ability to edit mm-hmm. so you're gonna you're gonna see everything so it made sense why you're still filming when I'm getting shot because I don't think I'm gonna die but what a great thing to get captured oh, yeah. that I'm it's your shot, big hero you know? moment yeah yeah you totally 
I feel like that's one of the biggest criticisms of found footage is that uh, oftentimes and often correctly, people think of it as a crutch where you say, oh, we have no budget, but the found footage shell is a really great way to make a complete feature length movie without having to give consideration to, you know, blocking and, and pre-production and all that. And I think in bad examples of found footage, that is the truth. But the best examples of found footage, and I think that Terror is, is a very good example, it speaks to there is a lot of pre-production going into making sure this oh, yeah. candid looking video, uh, you know, that that's not that's not an accident if it looks real. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the term you used, a mind map. I can imagine I'm picturing just like a wall with red yarn connecting things oh, just so we yeah. know who's holding the camera when and where it's going to what. Just so that that camera, like you said, is a character within the story. Well, and I think what's interesting, too, because, you know, I know there's a lot of criticism of wait a sec, they're running for their life from an alien. Why are they still holding a camera? But then you look at the footage from 2006 of Thailand and the mm. tsunami and the number of people who have handy cams who were filming the, the, the destruction around them. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think it's human nature to capture horror, you know, and if, if you know, someone, I mean, I see it all the time when, when there's a car accident and people are out with their cell phones just taping everything that's there. Um, and so I, I, you know, I, I sort of do question that, that, uh, criticism of found footage is why are they still holding the camera? And I think there is that moment of, of, I have the captured image that's going to, you know, put me on the map. Mm. Everyone wants um, to have the Zapruder film. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, there are parts where I see found footage and I'm like, oh, but it's. I mean, I, I do remember being watching Blair Witch and just being so uh, being aware of the way it was being done and then just being so lost in, in the story and mm. the insanity of it. And I, I someone explained something to me, which I think is so genius about the final moment is that there's a handy cam and then there's a Super 8 camera. Mm -hmm. And so the audio is coming from the handicam. And because the sound operator is dead, we see the footage. Uh, we're actually watching the Super 8 footage, but we actually hear in a distant mix mm -hmm. the VH, the, the video camera. And so there is this disjointedness in the final moments, whether she's running down the stairs where it doesn't match up because the audio is only coming from one of the cameras. And I thought that was genius. It's so brilliantly done. It's I've always, so uh, one of the things that I think Blair Witch was kind of the last to do is nothing explicitly supernatural happens in that movie. There's no yeah. beastie. It, like at the end of the day, you could look at that and say, ah, the locals were fucking with them. You know, there's nothing explicit. Now from there, any other found footage movie has to have something explicitly supernatural in it because we've kind of, you know, covered that ground that Blair Witch did. But it's little tricks like that, that soundtrack that allow us to be terrified and feel uncomfortable in a world where nothing explicitly ghostly is happening. Well, there's an amazing film. Uh, I don't remember the title of it, but John Malkovich is in it and he plays a director. And there's an actor who is uh, an old French actor who's becoming increasingly senile. And he's a world famous actor who basically starts to forget his lines. And there's a scene in it that's maybe 10 minutes long. And it's uh, John Malkovich directing this very complicated scene. And the shot is on John Malkovich watching this scene behind us that we never see. 
And yet the way it's done, you can see everything that's happening. And when there's a pause, you know that older actor has totally blanked. Mm -hmm. And just the look of empathy and fear and sadness and everything that goes over John Malkovich's face is enough to sell everything that's happening behind. And it's, it's incredible. And I realized that, you know, it doesn't take much to have us, you know, see the horrors that are happening behind the camera that we never see. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet it's, you know, people don't trust the audience is going to be captivated by that. And, you know, I think that's a real shame. Mm -hmm. I think it's important, yeah. especially in horror, to trust your audience, because if you end up, you know, trying to exposit everything to them, you undercut every potential scare that you could possibly set up. Well, and also the, the you know, as is, you know, become increasingly aware reading things on Twitter, is the horror audience is incredibly sophisticated. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's interesting because I'm surprised how left-leaning horror fans are. I, mm -hmm. I would have thought that, oh yeah, we get to see people get chewed up by monsters, you know, <laughs> that it's it's sort of our everyday monsters. But but it is interesting. The uh, I have a whole new respect for horror fans because I loved horror in the 80s. That was my time to sort of get scared. And, you know, Freddy Krueger was my hero. <laughs> Great age. Oh, yeah. and, um, and, you know, I loved the Scream franchise. Uh, but then in the land of Saw, uh, it just became torture porn. And, you know, I remember seeing Hostel 2 and Heather Matarazzo, is that her name? I believe so, yes. Uh, yeah, and when she's, you know, upside down and being, you know, gutted, I just, it was, you care so deeply about this character. And I just remember being like, oh, that, that, is, that is awful. But then what I realized is most effective is when you deeply care about the people in, in the horror film, mm -hmm. uh, it makes it, you know that much more impactful um but yeah so i stepped away for a bit because i was so disturbed by it and obviously living in you know everyday terror oh yeah um but uh but no it's just been really fascinating and you know just to sort of you know i picked up a subscription to shutter so to see uh to see some what's out there and seeing what's being talked about and yeah it's it's uh it's opened a whole new respect uh doing this for horror present-day horror for me I think the simultaneous rise of streaming, of Shudder, uh, the return of Fangoria has really opened up a window to a lot of people who have grown up with and grown with horror. And um, like you said, it's it's wildly left wing, which is phenomenal because you'd think it would be sort of edgelordy. But as it turns yeah. out, so many people have been able to work through, be it a mental health issue or a social issue, because of the way that things are presented in horror. Uh, it's a really beautiful thing. I love seeing the genre actually get um real respect as opposed to just niche respect uh it's it's been a great transformation well, of the genre it's interesting i have a, an acting coach in la who basically said you know the train of thought of people who go on a roller coaster um the people who are terrified of roller coasters and the people who are like roller coaster fanatics physiologically you go through the same thing the sweaty palms you know the increased heart rate the you know stomach flutter, all those things, except some people are deciding to coin that a negative emotion as fear and anxiety and all these other things. And then conversely, you know, it's excitement, it's joy, it's euphoria, mm -hmm. it's living on the edge, all these other things. But if you were to sit in the lab, your body's doing exactly the same thing. Yep. And I think that's what's so exciting about horror is, yeah, you're, you're paying money to 
to actually viscerally experience a film. I've always said that's the reason why comedy and horror are kind of joined at the hip is because I think functionally you're doing the same thing. Uh, they're the only two genres that are unsuccessful if they don't elicit an involuntary response. Um, you know, if I'm not crying at a drama movie, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. But if I'm not right. laughing at a comedy or I'm not scared of a horror movie, there is a fundamental failure there. So you're trying to create sort of that roller coaster response where you're creating a physiological response in somebody, which is why they're together. You know, so many like laughter is the release of tension. And when you're chasing right. fear in a horror movie, that's also what you're chasing is a buildup and then ultimate release of tension. And I think that's why, you know, for terror, that's a very funny, funny short, also horrifying. And I think yeah. it's because of that management of tension release. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And it's interesting, too, because I feel like for me. Uh, most things that are billed as comedies, I, I, I may smile through, mm -hmm. but I, I rarely laugh. Um, but anything that's sort of, you know, dark comedy, um, horror. I mean, I even find the term horror comedy. Um, I mean, I remember I, I recently started watching Freaky. Have you seen that? Oh, Vince Vaughn? Great yeah. movie. Really, really. Brilliant. But what was amazing is I'd, I'd heard so much about Vince Vaughn's performance. But at the beginning, it's horrific when the girl's getting her head squashed by the toilet seat. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I didn't expect that. And, and sort of got a whole new respect for me that you can balance that awfulness with that humor. It's, it's, there's know? an alchemy there that is yeah. so rarely nailed. But when you nail it, there's just nothing oh better. My God. Oh, it's so good. No, totally. Totally. Um, before we wrap up here, because I'll let you get about your day, I'll just ask a, a very basic question, a very broad one. What's your favorite movie? All right. Oh, God. I would say that the movie that... Um, uh, Breaking the Waves, I would say, is one of the movies that crept up on me and, and uh, I had such a visceral, weird reaction. I saw it at three in the morning. Have, have you seen that film? I have Our not country? seen it. Uh, I'm a oh. very big Von Trier fan. I actually just got oh. Antichrist in the mail the other day. Oh, nice. <laughs> and, um, um, yeah. yeah, and I was lucky enough to have met uh, Stellan Skarsgård oh. at a party. And there were six of us left in the room. And there were three women who were his handlers. Uh, this was part of our film fest. And um, they were like, so what time do you want to go? And then named the hotel. And I was like, don't name his hotel, you idiot. Um, <laughs> And then one of them was like, in the ride there, all I want to do is talk about Mamma Mia. I was like, are, are, what? Are you, yeah. are you kidding? Um, and then I had, to, I had to go in and I said, um, by the way, um, I just want to, my name's Christian. I just want to say thank you so much for breaking the waves. And his face changed. And he's like, oh my God, I haven't thought about that film for years. And then he told me all these stories about it. And then I was like, my whole thing is when you're talking to someone you super respect, leave while you're interesting, you know, leave with the mystery until you just sort of, you know, empty yeah, the yeah. tank and then you're just getting there in awe. Um, and so I was sort of, you know, I was saying my polite goodbyes. He goes, no, you can't leave. I need to keep talking to you about this film. And it was like, we were there for 10 minutes talking about breaking the waves. And I told him my reaction to the end of the film. And he goes, I had the exact same reaction reading it. And so I think for me, that was one of those great turnarounds. But I think another favorite film is The Vanishing, the original oh, Dutch version. 
The Vanishing is one of the most oh. haunting finishes to a movie I have ever seen. Oh my God, just completely totally. gut-wrenching, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, I know. And I did not see any of that. And I also love that halfway through the film, you know, he meets the killer. Yeah. And you're like, what, what, what is happening now? How can this go anywhere? I really thought I was it was like, going to oh. be just a, I'm hunting this guy down to get revenge or find my wife kind of movie. And totally. halfway through, it's just, no, we're giving you a completely different movie and you never know what to expect. Oh, that's a great oh. answer. I love that flick. Oh my God. And that's honestly, so the, the made for TV remake, as far as things go, uh, there's like a Kiefer Sutherland version. Yeah, it's, yeah, we won't it's talk actually, about that. Actually, it's not awful. I would never it's recommend not, but... watching it first, but, uh, no. you know, as those things go. Yeah, I find the animated version is not is not very good. I, the kids didn't respond very well to it. So. Yeah, it's not it's not really a good property for adding musical numbers, but you know, no, it's 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 weird, you know. Um, do you have a few minutes to uh, play a quick round yes. of twenty questions? Sure, sounds good. Okay, I have a movie in my head, and I'm going to mark down twenty questions here. Um, if you can ask yes or no questions and get to okay. the movie that I'm thinking of before 20. Um, I don't have a prize for you, but you can go home with a okay. spring in your step knowing that you figured right. it out. Is it a horror film? Uh, no. Is it American? Yes. Is it within the last five years? No. And you know what? I'll, I'll even give you a oh. boost here. It's, it's not, it is an American film, but it is not an American filmmaker. Oh, uh, is it Ang Lee? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, sorry, can I just say Ang Lee had never stepped in America in the 70s. And if you see the ice storm, you're like, how is that even possible? Really? He had never? Yeah. He, he hadn't been to America, I think, until the late 80s. Anyway, it just blows my mind. I um, mean, he's that's a savant. That, that guy can oh, make a movie. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, uh, is it a comedy? Uh, no. Is it a drama? No. Oh, shit. Is it a thriller? Um, yeah, we'll call it thriller. I'll even throw this. We'll call it, like, thriller sci-fi. Oh. Uh, does it take place on Earth? Yes. Uh, is there something about to destroy Earth? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay. Good question. Um, <laughs> Uh, okay. Uh, uh, does it have an A-list cast or people you laugh at when you read about them in magazines? Um, an A-list cast for its time, for sure. Oh, okay. So is it a film from the 80s? Yes. We're at 10 questions, so you're halfway there. Oh, shit. Um, you can do it. You can do it. Okay. Uh, does it take place? It, oh, sorry, it is in America, yes, but non-American director. Um, and I guess Showgirls isn't considered a, a sci-fi. Oh, um, uh, man. Okay. Well, uh, you know what? It's interesting that you said that, but I won't say why. Oh, is it Total Recall? It is not Total Recall. But am I close on the Paul Verhoeven? You are. It is Paul Verhoeven. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, it's it's not Starship Troopers. Um, uh, Paul Verhoeven. Oh, shh. Oh, Basic Instinct. It is not Basic Instinct. Oh. Oh, that was 90s. So it's Paul Verhoeven 80s? 
Is it RoboCop? It is indeed RoboCop. You Are you this. serious? Yep, it is RoboCop. You got it in 14. Good work. That's hilarious. Very nice. Very nice. Right on. Uh, apparently, his wife is a piano teacher uh, in LA and oh, wow. uh, a very good one. So there right you go. Right on. Right on. There's some trivia for you. Very that is cool. hilarious. I, I'm very impressed that I got that. I'm very impressed as well, but I figured I needed a movie that was popular, but wasn't just like, oh, it's Independence Day. <laughs> I need something right. yeah, yeah, sort, yeah. Of, sort of niche on that. Well, right on. Awesome. Thank you so much for, for playing. Thank you so much for donating Thank your time. You. VHS 94 no is currently available on Shutter. I'm praying that it'll get a physical release so I can add it to my, my stack of Blu-rays. But uh, is there anything that you'd awesome. like to plug or share with our listeners before we call it a day? Um, if you want to see, uh, you know, a glimpse into my comedy mind, I wrote a film that's available on Amazon Prime that is called Moments of Clarity. Um, uh, Eric Roberts is in it. <laughs> He's in everything. Um, and, it, you know, it's a really sweet, fun um, female road comedy. Right on. Like a road trip. Yeah. With some really fun characters in it. And that was a lot of fun to, to be a part of. Right on. Well, we love Eric Roberts here. So uh, awesome. I actually have a friend that does a podcast devoted entirely to Eric Roberts. Oh, and that's hilarious. more than a few times, they've managed to get him on the mic and never, ever disappoints. What that's a show. amazing. Right on. Well, so what a show. moments of yeah. clarity. Right on. Moments I will check clarity, that out. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, cool. So, yeah, awesome. so everybody check out Christian. He's uh, available on all the social networks. Uh, you know, if you want to check out your photography, we mentioned that in the introduction that we didn't want to say here. And uh, nice. that's pretty much it. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen, Christian Lloyd. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. And that was our interview with Christian Lloyd. What a guy. What an interesting and nice guy. And actually, I'm recording this part before the interview took place, so I don't know that. But I am not going to come back to this and edit this out, so I just hope that I'm right and I have every reason to believe that he gave a great interview. So thank you so much, Christian, for uh, donating your time to the show. Uh, I think it's just so cool that... Um, you know, I can talk to people about the process of making movies behind the scenes of movies that I like specific movies that I fucking love. And, uh, so thank you so much for that. So, Oh, I'm burpy. What do you say? We get into some chatter about the movies that I saw at the Philadelphia film festival. So, um, you know what I'm going to do? I, I actually started utilizing letterbox lists recently um, I never actually use Letterboxd as anything except my own personal log. I never think about it as a social network. And I always feel like a dickhead because, like, I'll read my friends' reviews. And then after I read the reviews, I never think to click like or anything because I'm just kind of, like, moving along. And it's uh, it's silly. And it's, uh, I, I just, I don't know why I don't think of it that way. So I'm trying to be better about it. And I recently made a couple, uh, a couple of lists. And one of them is the Philadelphia Film Festival 2021. So I'm trying to think if I should hit you with all of the stuff that I saw or whether I should just, because uh, it's a lot of movies. I saw, let's see, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 20, 22 movies. It's a lot of movies. 
And uh, this interview might have gone long. I don't know. I recorded this before the interview. So, like, it could have been 20 minutes. He might have pulled a Gallagher on, on Marin and walked because I said something stupid. Although, in the to be fair, in the Marin interview, it wasn't Marin that said something stupid. It was, it was Gallagher. He was acting a fool, as the late great DMX would say. Um, I don't know. Let's, let's see. The things that pop out, um, the, one of the coolest things that I get to see was this movie called Catch the Fair One. Um, it is directed by Josef, man, I'm really going to fuck this up. Josef Vladeka. Um, and so it is written by a, uh, actual boxer named Kaylee Reese and stars, you know, she co-wrote it with some other people and it stars her as well as a former boxer who is now kind of struggling to get by due to addiction but also her sister had recently been kidnapped into sex slavery and so to to put it simply she decides to enter the the trade herself undercover as a victim to try and find and rescue her sister uh, really really cool movie uh, it's 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 very well shot. I think it's a, it's a successful actioner, but this isn't like Taken. Uh, you know, of course, it has elements of that, but it, you know, it's more of a of a of a drama and a character thing. But the action really does sing. It's really fantastic, and uh, just super exciting stuff. I think that it's super dense. There's a lot of good thematic levels drawn from the fact that she's of indigenous heritage. And so it speaks into this idea of, you know, indigenous women being kidnapped into sex slavery or any kind of, you know, just being victims of any sort of crime. We see it from the angle of the the term that we use of, like, the less dead, where, like, if a little white girl gets hurt, you know, all the cameras point to her. But if, you know, a woman of color goes missing, it's just a statistic. So it, like, speaks to that in regards to indigenous folks, but also the idea that there's, like... You know, there's like a, a fetishism behind it. Like, it, it's wild that within the world of this oppressive thing of, of of sex trafficking is a covetousness as well as a complete disregard for humanity. And like, even within this evil world that doesn't jive, it's a pure craziness. And uh, just totally awesome movie. And it's it's really short. It's in and out. It's very stylish. Quite surprising at times. And... Uh, it's the only movie that when it cut to black at the end, everyone was dead silent in the theater, and then one person did a did like a like a like it like an exclamation of how moved they were, like a <gasps> so uh, really really good stuff. Catch the fair one. I don't know what kind of release it's gonna get, but I could not recommend it more. Uh, really really good stuff. Another one along the same lines. I think. One of one of my favorite things I saw at the festival, The Novice. Um, the Novice is directed by Lauren Hathaway. Um, and I'm going to bring up one of her previous credits. She was a sound editor on Whiplash. And it's very much a similar movie to Whiplash in that it's about an obsessive type. Obsessing because they want to be the best at something. Uh, now, there are a lot of different permutations that make this different from Whiplash. Um... But, well, okay, so Whiplash is drumming. This is in the world of rowing, like college competitive rowing and the row teams. Um, 
And so this is a movie that has really strong editing, which is why I wanted to bring up the credit to Whiplash uh, that that uh, the director had done sound editing, because there's no denying she has an understanding of pace and rhythm uh, in in really every level of cinema, sound and visual, because of the way that this works, it's um, really really phenomenal stuff. And so, and and it's like thematically resonant in terms of why this young woman is so obsessive. I don't want to spoil, but it's a really, really interesting sort of character study, just done well. But it's about this young woman who is uh, in college trying to be the best goddamn rower, and she seems to chase activities that she's not specifically good at so that it's there's no natural talent involved. Like, obsessed with the idea of having done it all herself with no leg up. And uh, I struggle to say more than that. Uh, the young girl in question is played by Isabel Furman, which uh, most people who listen to the show will remember as the little girl in Orphan, which is one of those like undercover great movies that was dismissed at first, but now has a cult thing. Um, but it also has, because here's where it's different from Whiplash, is that in Whiplash, we've got the obsessive student and the obsessive, uh, what's it, a maestro? the turtle man and the obsessive there who are willing to abuse each other. Uh, I wouldn't say abuse each other. He abuses the student, but the student also is like willing to abuse himself, but they have this awful relationship that ultimately produces results. This is different in that the coach here is just a nice guy. He just, he's just like, he's a cool dude. He wants everybody to do their best. He doesn't want anybody to, you know, to, to pass out. So I'm looking for my chapstick as I ramble. But this guy is played by Jonathan Cherry. And Jonathan Cherry is a name that you may remember. He's the guy in Final Destination 2 that gets chopped in half by the barbed wire fence that gets, like, launched by an explosion. And um, he's also in House of the Dead, the Uwe Boll movie. Uwe Boll? I don't know how it's pronounced. I always said Yui. Huey Bull. Um, yeah, he plays the coach. He's not a nice guy coach, but highly, highly, highly recommend The Novice. That shit was just... That might be... I don't know if it's like the best movie I saw at the fest, but it's certainly in the running for my favorite. Um, I saw this movie called One Second. It's uh, directed by Zhang Yimou, or Yimou Zhang, depending on where you look it up on my phone. And uh, it's a Chinese movie. He's the guy who did Hero. And uh, this is like kind of a cool movie to see at the first like in-person film event that I've been able to go to, short of like the handful of movies at the theater uh, in uh, since COVID started. Like film festivals were always a fun thing, and it's just kind of, it's coming back. And so this is a movie that was very much about the communal spirit of of watching a movie, but also of, like, the hard work and the the art that goes into just projecting the movie. Uh, and I think that's also really important at a time where we have Nicole Kidman at, before every movie at AMC, like, when we watch things on the big screen, here it is better. And it's like, no, it's not. It, this commercial isn't even projected properly. You didn't mask your screen. It looks gray. There's this weird red, white, and blue blur that comes off of everything. I can't be the only person who's noticed that. Oh, drives me insane. So yeah, it's important to have good projection, and this movie is very much about trying to give the best projection. And it's a, uh, so it's during the Chinese Cultural Revolution. And it's actually a couple years old because it it got pulled from a festival, 
uh, for they said technical reasons, but everybody thinks it was probably probably because of uh, some politics over there that I don't want to get into because I'm kind of a fucking idiot. And um, but it's just it's like a really charming and funny movie. It's it's very light. Like there is heavy stuff talked about, and there's heavy stuff in the backdrop of the movie. But the the plot of the movie itself in a vacuum is. It's just very delightful, very, very funny. It's absolutely gorgeous. And it's the story of of uh, Mr. Movie is a guy in an outpost, just like a village, that uh, projects the weekly newsreel with whatever, or monthly newsreel or whatever it is, with uh, whatever film he happens to have in his cans. And it tours from village to village, but uh, on its way back to his own village, one of the cans got stolen and one of the cans got spilled. So there's a simultaneous effort by a mysterious character in retrieving the the missing reel, and uh, there's also like a a town wide effort to clean up and get the newsreel portion which dropped and spilled uh, into a watchable state and to get it projected because it's very fragile because it is film and there's sand everywhere and sand sucks on every. In every there's no situation where sand isn't fucking absolute garbage. I hate sand. I hate sand. I love doing. I hate sand. Ugh, it gets in your ass crack. Ugh, it's like ugh, ugh, fucking hate it. But they gotta get all the sand off this movie. But it, yeah, it's just a really, really good movie. It's really moving. Everybody individually has a reason for getting this movie in their hands and into good shape. And all of these reasons occasionally clash and occasionally run concurrent to one another. So, you know, alliances form. And it's just, it's a delight. I absolutely loved it. I think of all the movies in the fest like that, that I thought about, this was the one that I thought about most. And mostly just because I thought about how much fun I had watching it. It's a, uh, it's, it's the movie that I went in blind, like, I've never seen Hero, but I was like, oh, that's the guy who made Hero. I'm supposed to like Hero. Uh, I have the DVD. I never watched it. What the fuck is wrong with me? And, uh, so it was a movie that I was just kind of seeing to fill a slot. Like, it wasn't something I went out of my way for, and it ended up being one of my favorites of the fest. I always try to do that, and it, it, it worked very well here. Um, let's see. Another, okay. Uh, th this part's going to come with me having to say the name of a filmmaker whose name I can't pronounce and whose name I'd like to pronounce properly because if I don't, it might be offensive. But I'm going to just do it phonetically. Um, I saw the new movie by Apichat Pong Weerasithakul, who is uh, the filmmaker who made Uncle Boon Me, who can remember his past lives that won the Palme d'Or uh, a few years back. Uh, which is an absolutely phenomenal movie. Uh, he makes very, very serene, hypnotic, quiet, slow-moving cinema. That's just, oftentimes you're looking at a series of photographs because a shot will hold for so long, or two people in a scene will hang out for so long and just share silence with one another. It's the kind of thing that at 2 hours and 16 minutes, I was afraid that at 10 o'clock in the morning, it was the first showing of the day when I saw it, I was very afraid that I was just going to fall asleep. Actually, my buddy Matt, who was there, said that he could barely keep his eyes open. But I'll tell you what, I was fucking hypnotized. Uh, this movie has... Uh, actually, you know what? It's interesting that, that I'm kind of pairing it with one second, because as I understand it, 
the way that this film is going to be seen is on a tour where it will only be playing in one location each night. It's not going to play anywhere else, just where it is. And it'll be going around touring to different places. I think that's how it works. I could be wrong. Uh, so, yeah, so I, I, I'm very happy that it's like kind of an event thing. I think that's very cool. I'm lucky to have seen it. And uh, so it stars Tilda Swinton as a lady who hears a noise. And that's what the movie's about. That's it. She hears this noise. It's a mysterious noise. No one else seems to hear it. And so she just kind of like hangs out, wanders around, does a little research, asks people about the noise. Vroom! Occasionally hears the noise, asks some more people about the noise, and that's that. It does come to an answer as to what the noise is. And it's the kind of thing that if it wasn't such a quiet movie, I probably would have stood up and been like, Fuck yes! Because it was just incredible. Um, this is not a movie for everybody, but I get the sense that it's a movie for more people than you would think. Because I, like I said, I thought I was going to be a little bit bored by it, and, but I was not, not for a second. It was, it was... Just fantastic. So Memoria, I don't know if I said the name. Memoria, it's called, and it is uh, it's an absolute delight. It's one of the one of the coolest movies I've, I think I've ever seen. Um. Okay, so uh, I got to see Sean Baker's new movie, Red Rocket, which is just goddamn hilarious. But in perfect Sean Baker fashion, not only is it hilarious, it shows us a window to a culture that is currently underserved by the world. Um, or, you know, it's just not, I mean, I guess underserved is, you know, something like Tangerine, absolutely, and Florida Project, of course, and Carry On, of course, so I guess that's, but, uh, underseen might be the, the better word, and so he makes these very human movies, who the fuck am I, what I say, there's these very human movies, and he makes these human movies that look into populations that we, you know, uh, but this one is a Texas population outside of Galveston in, like, an oil refinery town, lots of trailers, uh, and it follows the adventures of Mikey Saber, played here by Simon Rex, who you might remember from Scary Movie 3 and 4, uh, and who is, who has, like, the craziest, most unhinged energy is, it's so weird, but it's, it's his, man, it is his time to shine. He plays Mikey Saber, a porn star who has left Los Angeles and returned back to his home. Uh, well, his wife, his wife's home, his estranged wife's home where she lives with her mother. And, uh, it's just a very tense tale of him trying to get his way but also a very upsetting tale of him getting his way in a lot of ways that no one should get that way. Um, but it's, it's, it's just hilarious and it's difficult material and it, it actually gets humor and charm out of some very ooky subjects. Uh, he starts dating a young girl in town, a young girl in town. And even though she's legal, it's given the proper weight in how gross it is. But it's also charming and funny. Uh, it's also upsetting because there's more levels to it that I won't get into. But it is also a, a really good showcase for an actress who has never been in a movie before named Susanna Sun. 
And uh, yeah, she's she's never wait, she has been in something. Looks like she was in a short film called Secret Escort. Okay, from twenty nineteen. Oh, that's wild. That looks like I might have stumbled across something adult. It's directed by Bob Bragg. <laughs> okay, so I'm falling down a, a letterbox hole here. Uh, Bob Bragg was like an actor in Hellraiser three, but he is also a director of movies like. Uh, Passion Betrayed, Apache County War, Swamp Terror, Maggots, and Aliens on Crack. Oh wait, this one, uh, Eyes in the Hills. Eyes in the Hills. That's supposed to be evocative of another movie, but I just can't think of the title. Oh, what could it be? But, uh, we'll get into that. So Susanna Sun, uh, in her biography, it says, also known as the Strawberry Butcher is a model, actor, and online influencer. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, apparently, as I understand it, Sean Baker just saw her in like a movie lobby and was like, oh, you should audition for this. Um, but yeah, really great movie. Absolutely hilarious. There's an ongoing conversation throughout. It's a feature-length conversation regarding who should get the AVN award in a blowjob scene, the blower or the blowee. And there's a constant argument going on about that. Uh Red Rocket is, it's just so funny, and it's, it's the kind of thing that's, like, edgy in a way, like, I, you know, I, I, there's an edgelord in my heart that I, I don't try to feed too much, but he, he does need to take his snacks, and, uh, sometimes there's pleasure in people getting mad at something you did, I mean, John Waters made a career on it, uh, the idea that, that, like, the one thing people forget about trolls, trolls suck, but also, like, there is skilled trolling where it's like, no, you you don't understand. You being mad is actually the punchline. And uh, so I have a taste for a little bit of that. And in the former, and I don't think that there's, like, edginess, like, in Red Rocket at all. What I'm, in, in fact, much the opposite is the point that I'm making. One of the failures of someone who's being edgy is that often it's just empty edginess. And whereas the troll aspect is still alive, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a complete thing. Um, but I do have a taste for watching people get upset at stuff. Uh, but really only because it means that we're dealing in material that might not have been teased out quite yet. And, uh, so that's, an, so what I mean is in Red Rocket, there are some things that are unapologetically upsetting but they're presented and they're they're presented without judgment which is a beautiful thing because one it allows for us to have a complete character study but i could see it being a liability cuz not judging a character that does something awful but uh you know, that's the magic of Sean Baker's movies and he finds that here and gets a lot of laughs out of it long story short i think that's where i land but i mean it's just a really great movie and Simon Rex is a funny guy and he really gets to shine in here he gives like he's just got like this manic like fucking crack energy that is it's entirely unique to him take a little sip of my water I got a squirty boy in there um so i saw a movie called the sadness the sadness is one of the most hardcore splatter movies i've ever seen in my life so many times I will watch a movie that's like, this is it. This is extreme. This is the grossest shit you ever seen in your life. And then I watch it and I go, okay, it's pretty gross, you know? But like, 
you know, I, I done seen it. So I went into the sadness a little bit guarded, being like, yeah, it's at a film, it's at the Philadelphia Film Festival. They kind of want to be classy sometimes. Let's see what this is. And uh, I got to say, the sadness was fucked up. It was really, really fucked up. Uh, it's the only movie at the festival that I saw that that the the guy introducing it delivered a trigger warning. And it was a rather funny one because he was like, I know if you're here for this, you probably don't need this. But I actually feel like it's probably appropriate to say that this movie features extreme violence and a lot of it is of a sexual nature. And, uh, and he wasn't lying. This movie is hardcore. But uh, what's crazy is it's still fun. Um, it finds a way to be funny about this stuff, uh, but also give it like a, a more weight than you'd expect from like trauma splatter, but uh, you know certainly less weight than I'm sure would be required uh, to have a you know a, an informative conversation about things. But it's insane. The plot is very simple. It's uh, very much like a Twenty Eight Days Later kind of thing where it's just you know, somebody, you know, actually more of a Shaun of the Dead, because it's boyfriend and girlfriend get separated the day that a crazy zombie outbreak happens. But this zombie outbreak is called the sadness, because the people who are infected don't become mindless, brainless zombies. What it does is it cranks down your inhibitions towards violence and towards sex. And their inhibitions are gone, so they're not just like monsters that can't speak. They speak, they talk, they get vindictive, they want revenge, They it's it's like a full personality. So it's not just like, oh, get out of the way of the crowd and hide for a bit and the zombies will pass you by. It's no matter where you go, this one doesn't like me and now it's chasing me. And uh, But the cool thing about it is the people who are experiencing this disease, they are fully aware of what's happening, but cannot not be violent and horny so uh someone in the movie likens it to that's like telling somebody not to blink is the way that it would be and uh that's horrifying and so everybody who's infected has tears streaming out of their eyes because they can't believe what they're doing but they also cannot stop doing it and this is used to fulfill some of the most disgusting gruesome bloody and other fluidy splatter I've ever seen. It was a mix. It was like 28 days later meets the night comes for us. I just buckets of blood and vomit. And uh, if you're into this kind of thing, I actually think you should, I mean, I think you should hunt it down because I actually think you will be shocked by it because there were more than a few things that happened in it that like, like certain things are happening where I'm like, okay, I've seen that before. That's gross, but I've seen that before. But there was like two or three things where I just thought thought to myself, well, that's new, and uh, you'll love to see it. But if you don't love to see it, maybe avoid it, because it's like real fucking hardcore. Trigger warning there for you uh, as well. Um, let's get the director's name. It's uh, Robert Jabaz, but um, I know nothing about him. He did a bunch of other stuff, such as... Clearwater, which was six minutes long. Okay, well, whatever. This guy is going to be doing everything because that sadness is just completely mental. Um, what else do I want to highlight? Because I'm not doing all 22. I really just am not. It's not happening. Um, I saw a really good adaptation of the Broadway play The Humans. Um, I've never seen the play The Humans, but it's written by Stephen Karam, who wrote the script for this and directed it as well. 
and it stars, let's see, Beanie Feldstein, Richard Jenkins, Stephen Ewan, Amy Schumer, uh, uh, June Squibb, and, uh, who is the other one? Jane Howdyshell, as a family just, uh, getting together in their daughter's new apartment with her husband for Thanksgiving. And it's very much a play, but I think that 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 Karam really finds a lot of cinema in the way that it's staged. Uh, only in the final shot do I get the sense of what the actual stage set piece would have looked like, you know, live in a theater. Um, so until then, it actually feels very much like a movie. So... Um, if I didn't know this was a play, I wouldn't know it was a play. But I'd also be like, I thought this movie could make a good play. Uh, because it's essentially just this group of people having a Thanksgiving. Talking it out. Hashing it out. Things flare up. Things don't. But there's also like a weird, surreal element regarding the setting of the apartment that sort of speaks to this idea of imperfection and decay that... that ties into what the film's ultimately about, but it, I don't want to spoil too much, because I really went in blind, and I think that it was the right choice. Uh, really great performances from everybody. I had never heard of Howdy Shell before, but she was, it, she had this role on Broadway, so obviously, you know, she really knows it, and she, I mean, home run. But, like, I can't really, I can't really highlight any one, I mean, these are all performers that we know to be good, and I really can't highlight one as, like, the standout performance. Like, everybody gets their time to shine. Um, but I, th I think I was just... The one I will highlight is Amy Schumer. Because I, I've always liked Amy Schumer. She's funny. Um, I thought her acting was, like, phenomenal in Trainwreck. Which, if you haven't seen that and you listen to the show, you really should. As somebody who's, like, kind of, yeah, like, distanced from the, the latter-day you know, Apatow spinoff kind of things, which I feel like this is in that world. Uh, this is one of the better ones because it's really well written and Amy Schubert's like a really good actress in it. Uh, and, and I believe she wrote it too. Uh, so, But I always forget because like I just think she's a, a comedian, you know, she tells her jokes. And so I always forget and she's like really, really good in this. And it, I guess the point that I mean to make is she's somebody like Amy Schumer, like most comedians, her thing is that she's Amy Schumer. And so oftentimes when a comedian makes the jump to a dramatic role, it's so hard to unsee the character that they play as the comedian that shares their name. Um, to, for them to disappear into the role is, is tough. And sometimes it's an audience problem. Uh, I think actually much of the time it's an audience problem. But uh, it, here it's not a problem at all. Uh, Schumer's great. Like, really great. She's out, you know. She's acting across Richard Jenkins, who's you know one of the best actors who's ever done the job, and just completely hold. I wouldn't even say holding her own because then it sounds like she's treading water. Just fucking home run across the board. I really loved this movie. Um, I don't know what else to say about it. It's 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 the only non horror movie I think I've ever seen that's like kind of scary, and I saw it like after uh try like. I've been trying to get my parents to come to Thanksgiving at my girlfriend's parents' house because they always, you know, do it up and it's fun. But my parents are hermits. And so just that day, Jed and I were having a conversation about, like, we got to get my parents to Thanksgiving. We got to get them there. Like, we want them there. It'll be cool. And then I, <laughs> this movie ended and I was like, you know what? The fact that my parents don't want to come to Thanksgiving 
that could be a blessing. I'll leave it at that. But The Humans was really, really fantastic. I'd like to see the play. Um, a similar movie, uh, Mass, uh, by Fran Kranz, uh, written and directed by him. He's an actor. Uh, you would recognize him. I mean, I would recognize him from Cabin in the Woods. He's the stoner guy who uh, ultimately like makes it pretty far in the uh, in the thing. Um, he wrote and directed this, and it is a uh, another sort of just bunch of people in a room. Only this time, it's like in a room. What I think is interesting about it is the way it's shot. Is that there's not a lot of cinema to be found in the room, but Kranz finds it in the faces of his actors. They're uh, well, and they're, they're all like towering actors. So uh, what it is, is we've got two couples, one played by Jason Isaacs and one by Martha Plimpton, who, if I may be crass, can still totally get it. Um, and another couple played by Reed Burney and Anne Dowd. And they're there to hash out their feelings regarding each couple having lost a child in a school shooting. And... Really, really heavy stuff, bookended by some light and appropriate humor that, that you know, keeps it, keeps it appropriate. Uh, but this is like an actor's showcase, and I thought there was times where, like, the shifts in emotion seemed sudden and, like, unearned. It really doesn't matter. It's, it didn't, it wasn't ever enough to take me out of the movie, and the performances are just staggering. Like, everyone's so fucking good. But, uh... As I was saying before, there's a lot of cinema to be found in their faces. So, like, the interplay between their faces. So, whereas it's like, okay, this scene isn't necessarily, like, dynamically blocked or having some crazy shot. But I look at the face that Jason Isaacs makes, and then he makes that face towards someone else. And so it really comes down to the shot choice, because then we see their reaction. And it captures that era, that part of the performance where, like, I don't know if they were necessarily together in that moment of these two takes. Perhaps they were. But if they weren't, it, it flows beautifully. So, like, I, it's a weird choice for, you know, kind of a goofy actor guy uh, as his debut. But I got to say, it's a very strong debut, uh, both as a writer and a director. And like, I, I would love to see where his career goes from there. It's called Mass. And um, funny story from the, the screening. This was a screening that was added to the festival a little bit later. And uh, so I had only heard them mentioning it out loud. Uh, and so I just thought it was called Mask. So before the movie started, I was talking to my uh, friend of the show, Andy, also just my friend, uh, a friend of the show, Andy, uh, I I held up the poster on my phone for the Eric Stoltz share movie, Mask, because I thought the movie was called Mask, and I was like, check it out, can't wait to see it, and he was looking at me like, I don't know what you're talking about, I was like, dude, Mask, like, that's the movie, and he was like, nah, this is called Mass, and I was like, uh, got it, I'm an idiot, I'm definitely an idiot, but I'll tell you what, Mass is great, I really, really enjoyed it, um, Celine Siama's new movie, uh, Petite Maman, is uh, just a goddamn masterpiece. She did Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, crazy thing about this, 72 minutes. And I know we all joke now, like, this movie is uh, an investigation into grief and trauma. Uh, this sort of is an investigation into grief, but it's done in a magical and joyous way. Uh, it's... It, this was one of the most delightful movies. It, it just went down so easy. 
at the same time, it was supremely moving. I don't think there's anyone on the planet better at just like dissolving the screen than Siyama, or is it Shyamas? I'm gonna. I'm so bad with these names. Oh, I'm the worst. I'm just the worst. Somebody kill me. Um, Siyama is re- just so good at at making you forget you're watching a movie and just like you're in it. And this one's just like a simple plot. Grandma dies, so mom, dad, and daughter are cleaning out grandma's house. And uh, daughter goes over to the neighbor's house and meets the young girl who lives there, and they play every day. There's more to it than that as to what is understood as the relationship between the two girls uh, in terms of who they represent. And it's sort of magical, but it's never played as fufa magic or anything like that. It's just what it is. Um, it's so hard to describe, but it's, it's one of those movies that takes the lack of wisdom that a child has and shows it as its own kind of wisdom in that there's no, like, they're pure thoughts. It's, it's a pure existence. And I always had a goal growing up that I would not forget what it was like to be a kid. and. In a lot of ways, I thought that I hadn't, but I think I had, because Petite Maman felt like being a kid, and it was a feeling that I haven't felt in forever. So, yeah, it was just, it was really nice, and it it was, uh, it should be difficult, sad, upsetting material, and it's not, it's just sweet. There were so many giggles in the crowd, there was, uh, there's a great scene in the movie with giggling, and it's also just, like, great kid performances, I believe, by two actual sisters, um, just an absolute delight. I'll watch anything made by this filmmaker. Uh, two masterpieces in a row. This is just, it's its perfect. I gave it five stars on my letterbox. It's a perfect movie. And it's the movie that I was not at all in the mood to see. I was like, I could probably skip this and just get a fucking donut. But I didn't. I decided instead to uh, see this movie. And uh, it was one of the best things that I saw at the festival. It might, it, I hate bringing objectivity into movie reviews, but uh, objectively, it was probably the best. Oh, I can't believe it. Um, a couple like silly ones. Uh, if you're feeling uh, if you're feeling like seeing something light, there's this solid little documentary called Alien on Stage about a group of Bristol-based bus drivers who decide to do a, a stage play based on Alien. And they're just normal people. They're not actors. A lot of them are family. And they just do this because they think it's fun. And uh, the right people see it and give them a chance to play it at a at a bigger theater in London's West End. And it's just a charming documentary about normal people doing stuff for the love of it and getting the attention they deserve. And uh, also, like, the clips from their show have me convinced that if uh, Alien on stage ever does a tour or I ever find myself uh, anywhere near where they're, where they're staging it, I would absolutely like to go. Uh, really amazing effects that they've managed to build out of just, like, normal household stuff. Although they do have a guy who made the costume, and he's, like, this savant almost. Really cool. Um, definitely recommend that. I saw this wild movie called Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn. And... The general idea is that it's about a respected and talented teacher who makes like a playful sex tape with her husband and 
it accidentally gets leaked. Like she doesn't, she didn't do anything about it. It's just that her husband took the computer that he didn't know it was on to get fixed. And the people who worked at the store leaked it. And so now it's her like trying to get her job or trying to protect her job. And it's like a very charming comedy. It actually has some uh, very hardcore depictions of sex. I, I will say this at the beginning, like the lead actress, if you weren't looking closely, maybe if you're watching at home, it would actually look like she's just sucking a dick for real. And I was like, wow, this is wild. This is some brown bunny shit. But if you look closely, you can see that it's a dick-shaped object that has had a digital dick put over it, which is fascinating because it's like, if I wanted to make a movie with a certain actress um, who is not trying to do actual pornography on screen, but we want to make the artistic choice of showing like a, a very sexually frank video as they do in this. That's how it would be done. That's how it would be done. Just having her sucking on like a tennis ball can and then they just put a, a dick over it. But either way, that, that's what's cool about this movie is that it's, it's sexually frank. Um, you know, all the simulated stuff looks, looks real and is meant to be pornographic. Um, and it's meant to be, uh, it's meant to be, Frank is the word. It's just meant to be what it is. And so I appreciate it because there's very much this idea of like, this lady didn't do anything wrong through circumstance, something, you know, that that's personal got out, but nothing illegal, nothing sinful, uh, nothing out of the ordinary, just a husband and wife doing what they do in the bedroom. And, uh, yet she gets like persecuted for it. But the format of this movie is really what, what's so fascinating about it. The first part of the movie is essentially just long videos of this lady walking around town and occasionally either speaking to somebody or talking on the phone uh, sort of passively about, quote-unquote, the video. And that's, like, it. And it's long. But never do any of these shots bore. Like, I'm always interested in where she's going and why, even if there's that's really not the thing of it. And, uh, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's a very strange thing. And then the middle of the movie, like, chapter two is just a montage of images and factoids told in a very, uh, you know, just like peppy and, and, you know, trying to be funny way. And it's very funny. Some of the stuff that, that it says is like pretty thoughtful or thought provoking. And then the last part is her actually at a school meeting, hashing out the, the ethics of this tape. Uh, with her co-workers, who are all cartoonish people of a different stripe. So it's this wildly absurd thing that is both absurd in in form as in content, but it, it's ultimately, like, a very thoughtful uh, exploration of just, like, how fucking stupid we are about sex and how much misery comes from... Misery and judgment comes from the fact that we don't talk about it. And, uh, and this was paired with a short film... That was essentially just a a version of the uh of like the middle segment of this where it's a montage, um, called plastic semiotic. That was very cool, but I I could see how it could test some people's patience. Um, I think I heard a noise, and I think it was my cat. So I'm gonna pause this for a second. Sorry about that. Had to stop it for a second. My cat's being a creep. I'm currently alone in the house, so I'm getting all spooked, like maybe there's something there. But if I have her in the room, she starts eating the cables on my drums, and it's a whole fucking thing. But goddammit, I love her. Yeah, I'm talking about you, Stinky. I'm talking about you. If you're good, you can be on the podcast. Okay, you can sit on my lap, but you gotta be good. Alright, so 
if you hear jingles, it's because my annoying cat is going to be sitting in for the rest of the podcast. But I'm only going to go over a couple more things. Um, I think one of the most fun movies that I saw was a movie called Mother Schmuckers. Um, it exists somewhere between Quentin Depew, Tom Green, and... Uh, oh, I don't know. I think that actually probably covers it. And it's a patently absurd movie just about a very poor family and the two teenage boys or at least early 20s boys that uh are, are part of this family and uh one of them is played by one of the directors uh harpo guit g-u-i-t gui um and really all it is is just these two boys lose their their mom's dog and now they have 24 hours to get it back before she kicks them out of the house uh but they're just these two completely chaotic assholes who are starving most of the time and who just like being gross and loud and annoying. And that's pretty much the whole movie is them just kind of working to get this dog back and causing trouble in their neighborhood at the same time. Completely absurd, chaotically silly, um, ultimately extremely disgusting, but uh, in, in the best of ways. It I laughed myself stupid watching this. Cat, I gotta kick you out of the room. I'm kicking the cat out of the room. This is me kicking her out. I'm sorry, you're just too annoying. You're too annoying. I will play with you later. My goodness. My goodness. Fucking cat, man. I love her, but man, she's just, she needs so much attention. She needs it all, and I want to give it to her, but I just want to record a fucking podcast, you know? Mother Schmuckers, though. You should check it out. It defies description. It's only 70 minutes long, but uh, it's just so goofy. It's goof-tastic. Uh, another movie on the goofier spectrum here is uh, it's called Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes. This is a faux one-take movie, but it was shot entirely on a cell phone. Uh, by Junta Yamaguchi, and so it's about a, it's so silly, it's about a cafe owner who has like a monitor downstairs in his cafe, and he lives in an apartment above the cafe, and he can watch what's going on downstairs from a monitor upstairs, and vice versa, if, if he so chooses. And after work one day, he goes upstairs and looks at the monitor as to what's going on downstairs and finds that what he sees is actually two minutes in the future. Like, he starts interacting with himself from two minutes in the future. So he goes downstairs, and sure enough, as fate would have it, what he's saying is exactly what he heard himself say two minutes ago. And so him and a bunch of his friends start to really explore what can be done with a two-minute window into the future. And it adheres to its time travel logic uh, perfectly and expounds upon it in the most imaginative way. But it's very high pace, very, very funny, and like ultimately very sweet. It's uh, it's just a delight of a movie. I, uh, I, I had so much fun with it. I mean, I love time travel as a mechanic. It's just so much fun to think about. And uh, they use it very well here. It reminded me of Time Crimes. Also kind of reminded me of One Cut of the Dead in terms of how it was constructed and like, you know, just what it's like generally. Um, highly recommended. I get the feeling you'll probably see this on a streamer very soon because it's like a super crowd pleaser, but uh, very, very, very clever and uh, very strong visually. And if you 
stay through the credits. Oh yeah, also stay through the credits of Mother Schmuckers. Highly recommend it. But if you stay through the credits of Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes, you get to see some behind the scenes footage of how they did it because there's a couple things that like even if they didn't have a low budget, I'd still be like, wow, how did they do that? It's uh, very, very good stuff. Definitely, like, one of the tops of the festival. Oh, man, I feel like I almost want to be uh, done with it, but I, I will say, I, I don't have much to say about it, but The Worst Person in the World is a new film from Joaquin Trier. Uh, he has done a couple other movies. I've only seen one, uh, actually, at a previous uh, Philadelphia Film Fest called um, uh, Thelma which I highly recommend. It's a horror movie, sort of. But this is like a rom-com, and it's a rom-com that chronicles, I guess, like a couple years uh, of, just a couple years of, the, of in the life of like a lady who's just trying to figure shit out. And that's really what it is. Like, it's, it's just a very straightforward and uh, honest comedy slash drama just about figuring it out. But it's very well done. It's beautifully shot. It's beautifully acted uh the worst person in the world i i don't want to say this is one that i don't want to say too much about because like there's no way for me to describe it that would that that wouldn't make it sound worse but i assure you it's like the greatest thing in the world like not worse but like if i described it to you it would just be like me describing a rom-com but i assure you it is not that at all um highly recommend and i i I liked it so much that I, I've made it a point. I'm going to watch some more Joaquin Trier. Uh, I think that is, uh, I think that's it. There's a, you know, there's a couple other things, but I'm starting to lose my voice over here. I feel like that did it. Um, but if you follow my letterbox, you can see the whole list of things that I saw. Um, and also write up on about like, I think 11 or 12 of them over at findy.com. Uh, so definitely check that out. Uh, once again, thank you to Christian Lloyd for uh, being on the show. Thank you to the Philadelphia Film Society for putting on another great festival, the 30th annual Philadelphia Film Festival, I believe. And um, PFF 30, so unless it means something else, I don't know. But uh, whatever. And uh, yeah, and thank you to uh, Findy for getting me in the door there. And uh, so as always, check out I like to movie movie at movie movie cast on all of the things. Check out the movie John podcast network where you can find other great podcasts like this one. You can check out hot property on Spotify or anchor FM, my comedy podcast. And I am at Dan Scully on all the things. And if you forget all of that, just go to scullyvision.com for every fucking thing entirely. That's all there is. Um, so I can actually tell you what we're going to be talking about next week. Tune in uh, in two weeks, uh, as per usual. Uh, my co-host of Hot Property, Stephen Richards, uh, was very, very moved by Denis Villeneuve's Dune and would like to come on the show to talk about it. So that is going to be our next episode uh, will be Dune. Also stay tuned. We've got some cool surprises coming up. I've got some more interviews being set up at this moment and uh, some special guests coming in to talk movies. So stick around. Um, I think that's all I want to say. I, you know what it is? I'm, I'll tell you exactly what it is. I'm going to be honest. I don't love the sign-off. I didn't love the original sign-off. I don't love the sign-off that I have now. Like, I like it because it's new, but every time I say it, I'm always like, eh, 
eh, and I don't want to be like that. Nobody wants to be like that. So I'm going to come up with a new sign-off. If anybody wants to pitch in and give me a new sign-off, or at least throw some ideas my way, reach out to me on Twitter, reach out at MovieMovieCast or MovieMovieCast at gmail.com. Uh, I don't know. What should the sign-off be? Um, if I look at stuff on my desk, I can see a painting of Sheriff Brody that says we're going to need a bigger boat. It could be that. Um, I've got a Satanic Temple certificate, but that doesn't have any like fun, you know, like rights on it that I can do. There's a Rocky poster. Oh, you know, I'm just gonna do. I could do the uh, the tagline to the guest because I have a the guest poster. So what if I was like, all right, that's been I like to movie movie. My name is Dan Scully, and be careful who you let in. I think that'll do for tonight. Have a good one, folks. Yeah. <laughs>